Hey everyone, welcome back to all my listeners. Hope you're all having a great day so far. And if it's your first time finding me, thanks so much and welcome. Welcome to episode six of my fourth season. Today is Wednesday, October 6th, 2021. My name is Sonal Patel, and this is the Paint the Medical Picture podcast series. Now the month of October has started up and I am decked out in pink to raise awareness this entire month for Breast Cancer Awareness Month in the United States. For me personally, this is a cause near and dear to me every single month of the year, but I wanna pay particular attention to breast health in any way I can during this month. That means check out my LinkedIn page. My daily posts are blazed in pink and will help you navigate the best treatment sites across the country or whatever it is that I will be sharing. Just know it will be relevant and helpful to raising awareness for maintaining breast health at any age. It's a must. So let's get right into today's show. In my compliance tip today, I want to bring us back to basics when it comes to dealing with breast biopsies. And all right, guys, now I've got a very special guest with us today. I'll be rolling that red carpet out for Shelly Asbury. Remember my focus series on hospice in season three? Well, I was finally able to get a hold of this incredible expert in the hospice space for meaningful conversation. And I round out today's episode with a remarkable quote on illumination from the best of the best, Maya Angelou. If you've checked me out on LinkedIn, you know I'm all about compliance and protecting our physicians and valued healthcare professionals when it comes to the business of medicine. I hope this week with me brings you enough to take back to your organizations, to want to dive in deeper, to use my tips and best practices to ensure success. I hope this podcast will help you boost the quality of documentation capture and improve coding accuracy as you help your providers paint the medical picture. If you like what you're hearing, go ahead and hit that subscribe button now so you don't miss another episode. Please write in a review and kindly drop me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to my podcast. I'd really love your support. And as always, a friendly disclaimer. Remember, I'm bringing you the news, current healthcare industry news, my compliance tips and recommendations based on my over 10 years of experience in front office, back-end, coding, and billing for multi-specialty physicians, compliance, and auditing for both ENM and surgical operative reports. These are my opinions alone and are not to be construed as legal advice. So let's get into a very special newsworthy that features my guest today, Shelly Asbury. I'm so excited to introduce her to all of you. Now, Shelly has more than 30 years of experience in the healthcare industry. She has worked at major corporations like Vanguard and the HCA. She possesses exceptional regulatory research skills and industry knowledge of all fee-for-service, value-based, capitated, and other reimbursement methodologies for inpatient and outpatient hospital services, physician and non-physician practitioner services, nursing home, home health, 
and hospice, ambulatory surgery centers, and other healthcare providers. She also has extensive knowledge of the revenue cycle, all of its operations, and revenue integrity functions, including charge master, denial management, and compliance audit and monitoring functions. Shelley is currently an associate consultant with Acevedo Consulting Incorporated. She's also a member of several committees, including those for the AAPC, AHIMA, FCSO, NGS, and the CMS. Oh my goodness, Shelley, that's simply amazing. Welcome. Welcome to my podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you have joined us. I know my listeners are in for a lot of great information from you. So thanks. Now, you know what? It sounds like you've had an incredible history based on your bio alone, right? As a health information management professional, I know your experiences scale from all sorts of specialties and settings, but I'd like to know a bit about how you were able to transition from position to position with aplomb. I know my listeners would love to know what it takes to shift gears, so to speak. Well, to begin with, I have been in the healthcare arena for over 30 years. Um, I started as um, in the nursing field, actually, and kind of worked my way through that. I really enjoyed taking care of people. Um, it was a great experience. And then as I progressed through the nursing field, I would have friends and family that would bring me their medical bills to look at because, you know, they always some people check them, you know, oh, I've over was overcharged for this or I didn't get this kind of thing. So I would start looking at them to help them navigate through the healthcare system and the reimbursement system. And I found that I really liked being the detective, if you will, and, you know, battling against the insurance companies to get these claims paid and, you know, what have you. And sometimes even going up against the physician offices and, you know, um, having them correct the medical records because they charged for things that really didn't happen. So um, I transitioned. I went back to school and um, took a little community college class and, and received a, my coding certification. So um, I became a certified coder. And back in the day, you know, that was back in the 80s, I think 90s, early 90s when I did that. So it was really hard as it is today, still getting some of that experience as a coder, you know, you don't just literally walk on a job. Little community hospital in the community that I live in. So I actually went there and applied and, and was hired. So I started out as a file clerk and just kind of worked my way through the department. I eventually was able to work as a coder and then just, um, you know, was promoted through the department, ended up being um, promoted to the director of health information and the chief privacy officer. So I had a lot of roles and responsibilities, if you will, and, and um, felt that I needed to kind of step up my game a little, little bit. So I went back to school. Um, during this time, we were then bought out by HCA Healthcare, and I was actually promoted to the corporate office in um, Nashville. So I made my way to Tennessee. Um, I became the corporate director of coding compliance physician services. And I was there for a little while and then um, just decided I wanted to do something different that didn't fit for me. 
Um, so I was responsible for 26 hospitals and about 150 um, physician practices and, and had a good staff. So that was a very um, nice career and uh, career trajectory for me. My goodness. I mean, you have had such amazing experience and you started, like you said, I really was leaning in and listening to how you started, right? And you were the one, Nancy Drew, who was investigating those family members' medical bills. And you were able to figure out how those charges were being delved out, right? And you realize that you were good at something, you were good at this, and you just, you know, perpetually climbed that ladder and took all of your next steps swimmingly. So that's amazing to go to another major corporation like that um, and be employed there for so long and making a difference for their financial systems, right? That's just incredible, incredible dedication to the profession that you showed over all of these years. You've become um, renowned in what you do in terms of the billing, the compliant levels for documentation, things that you need um, to sort of hold these higher level positions as a director. So that's incredible. I think my audience is going to have a lot of takeaways here that you've provided. So thanks so much. It's great. Absolutely. All right. Now let me move on to the next little bit here of your expertise. Now I know, and we've all heard that you have a reputation in the hospice space. Now we know that in the landscape of healthcare today, currently this area has been hit hard with many, many, many post-payment audits. Now, I tried very hard last season in season three of my podcast to dedicate a series of episodes on proactive measures that can be taken to avoid this very nightmare. Now, I'd love to know about your hands-on experience with hospices, as well as anything you can share regarding your best practice tips and tricks for this particular space of healthcare. Sure. Um, as we know, hospice, um, you know, is paid mainly by Medicare and Medicaid. Those are the biggest payer sources we have. So, of course, you know, they're really looking at hospice services. Um, hospice is very expensive. So Medicare pays out, you know, a tremendous high alert um, because the regulators are increasingly honing in on that industry. They're looking for, you know, poor documentation. They're looking for missing documentation. Um, regulatory enforcement activity was temporarily stalled last year due to the coronavirus pandemic. However, they have been notified that the nurse practitioner is seeing the patient. Is there a notice of election for that patient? Um, you know, again, does the documentation match on um, the level of service we see um, in the realm, if you will, you know, because we, we think hospice is end of life care at times. It is uh, managing the symptoms of certain diseases. It's not only just cancer care. Um, it can be, you know, a patient that is in end stage renal failure. It can be a patient that's in end stage um, heart failure. So it encompasses many different disease processes, not just cancer. 
So you may have a patient that's near their end of life and could be seen, you know, in a hospital setting or in a hospice house or even at home. However, they may be stable, um, even though, yes, they are at end of life, but their care is stable. So we should not be seeing um, providers submitting high level of services for those visits. They could be, you know, stable with a low level. Um, so providers need to be very careful on their documentation practices and document exactly what they're doing for that patient during the day or during their visit. And what we're seeing is um, the U.S. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, again, suspended those audits and medical reviews by the Medicare Administrative Contractors, which are your MACs, they um, suspended those in July of 2020. So again, they have reinforced and restarted um, those enforcement activities in August of this year. So um, despite the uh, continued status of the federally declared pandemic, they are coming hot and heavy on our hospice providers looking to take money back. Um, so we need to just be very um, cognizant of our documentation practice Practices, you know, um, not cloning, not copying and pasting records. We see a lot of that happening. Um, we see hospice utilization among Medicare descendants. It rose to nearly 50% more for the first time um, during 2018, according to the U.S. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So as utilization climbs, so does the amount of dollars that CMS spends on hospice care. So there are um, you know, it spurs the agency to step up the enforcement practices. So they are really you know, annually for these services. So it's becoming a hot spot across the nation. Um, in 2018, latter part of 2018, the OIG issued a report on payment-related vulnerabilities in the Medicare hospice program. This was the first in a series of OIG reports throughout 2018 and 2019 that identified payment and quality related problems in hospices nationwide. So based on those findings, the OIG issued recommendations that CMS, of course, strengthen um, their hospice oversight, if you will. So they want to um, look at uh, issues that can engage practices in higher concerns, if you will. So auditors are aiming to address concerns that range anywhere from billing um, and claims to patient eligibility. Are they even eligible for hospice services? Um, hospices will need to make sure that they keep up periodically to the revised rules and guidelines, and they want to make sure that they're in compliance. Uh, most recently, the OIG, which is the Office of Inspector General, for those that do not know, um, they published a report in May of this year, 2021, regarding audit findings from a particular hospice. It was called Suncoast Hospice. The records did not support terminal prognosis and the level of care submitted. So they had a twofold, if you will. It did not support the CTI, and it did not support the level of services that were reported. Suncoast Hospice received $47. million in overpayments. That's a lot of money. So, of course, CMS wants their money back. 
a few other notable um, reports that were found based on audit findings that the OIG identified. Um, SheMed was found to have been overpaid by $75 million. And then Evercare, um, which is another hospice provider, um, was overpaid by $18 million. So the takeaway from this information today would be, I cannot stress enough, make sure you have the documentation to support your level of services. Make sure you have a documented CTI that is appropriate. Make sure first and foremost, of course, that your hospice patients are eligible for the hospice benefit. Um, you know, and again, if not, there are um, private payers, there are self-pay, but you know, don't bill the Medicare service if it's not appropriate. Um, and one of the big things that I've seen, I've been doing a lot of hospice um, audits here lately, and I see a lot of them documenting their services based on time because with the new um, 2021 guidelines, they don't fall under those uh, guidelines, if you will, because they're not office-based services or other outpatients. They're still using, you know, hospital-based services or they're using home services. Um, maybe they're in an ALF. Um, center. So we see a lot of them still documenting by time. And you need to make sure that you document the total time that you spend or document your time in and time out. Um, we see a lot of, I spent approximately 60 minutes with the patient. Well, unfortunately, that approximately 60 minutes is not appropriate documentation. So again, document, document, document. Um, make sure you're reviewing what's appropriate. Fantastic, Shelley. My goodness. I mean, so many tips that you provided. I loved that you brought up the fact of those massive OIG audit reports. There are so many details in those OIG audit reports that really outline very clearly, in my opinion, exactly what you stated. Providers really do have to better document their levels of care in the hospice setting, especially as we know, it's a very good thing when all of our providers, um, you know, capture what they do appropriately, but they're providing effective healthcare. So even if those patients are terminally ill and are dying, it is simply okay for them to be a little bit better from month to month. So long they receive that care, that's not quite as high as they're billing for, right? Those conditions that they're being treated for are more stable. So then therefore the provider should not be billing for those higher level of services. And a lot of those OIG reports happen to outline that type of information very, very clearly. So it's not that they're disputing necessarily that the patients are uh, in hospice because of their terminal illness, they're disputing it simply because the level of care was billed too high. So kind of like what we're used to in the office outpatient world, right? Where you're overbilling at a level four when really the service is a level two. It's very comparable to the levels in hospice care. Um, so we need to be much more mindful of documenting appropriately and then billing appropriately. I really enjoyed all of your key takeaways. Those were fantastic items for all of us to remember as we provide care 
for the patients in the hospice setting. Incredible, really, really valid, useful information. Amazing. All right, now why don't we move on to my next question. Now, you know that I'm all about working smarter for coding compliance and affecting change in this space of healthcare. But I want to hear what Shelly has to say. I want to hear your voice. What are some of the most important issues to you that need to be addressed in the revenue cycle to ensure that our providers are doing the right things right from the get-go and bypassing all of these clawbacks and takebacks of monies after four or five years? Of services. So they really need to have that good rapport with each other because the physicians are not always trained on the appropriate coding guidelines, um, you know, CMS regulations and rules, what have you. And they're all different. CMS is different, um, you know, from Blue Cross Blue Shield, if you will. Um, so it's really imperative that the they do have that good regard to keep up so you can't expect your providers is trying to provide good hospice care good patient care to their patients and they have to worry about okay well what rule did cms change today am i allowed to build this code or not or am i allowed to build this code with this code what do i need to document for my diagnoses etc so it's really important that the coders and the physicians work hand in hand with that being said, in some of our smaller hospice practices, et cetera, or maybe, you know, just an uh, independent hospice provider working as a contractor, um, doing billing on their own, and they may not have that coder. Um, so it's really important that if the physician is selecting their own code levels, they are in tune to what the um, excuse me, the documentation practices are and the requirements are for each level of service. Um, also, if you have an EMR, EHR system, if you will, you need to make sure that you're utilizing those systems appropriately. A lot of those have the capability to where you can copy, um, paste, you have those little check boxes where you can just automatically check all negative and everything populates. Sometimes within those systems, there's a little flag, if you will, that's turned on that gives that um, system the option to auto-calculate the ENM service. Well, if you automatically populate all of those levels just by clicking those check boxes, of course you're going to get a higher level of service than what you have probably appropriately done. So you need to turn off all those flags. Don't add any fluff to your documentation. Document exactly what you're doing at that current date of service and appropriately code for that level of service. Um, the other thing that's really important is the entities need to be conducting some sort of internal monitoring on themselves. You know, whether it's two or three charts per doctor per month, what have you. The OIG recommendation, of course, is five to 10 um, percent of the total amount of services that the patients see in a year. So you can figure that out, you know, and just do some internal monitoring, monitoring, do some peer review with each other. 
um, if you don't have the capability to do your internal audits, then of course outsource, um, you know, find a consulting company. Um, we're awesome, you know, reach out to us and we can help you with that. But, but yeah, um, on, a, on a serious side note, you definitely need to make sure that you're doing that internal monitoring and or external monitoring to make sure the documentation is appropriate to what's being built. Absolutely, Shelley. Amazing. This is exactly why I have this podcast. It's so coders and physicians can learn to play on the same team, right? The coder's job is to make the physician's life for the business side of medicine much easier. We are the ones who are completely well-educated to do this profession. And our providers are amazing at providing fantastic patient care. So the two should marry, be on the same team, right? I loved what you had to say there, absolutely. And sure, over the years, I agree with you. I have seen documentation that is fluffy. That is not, in my opinion, in my opinion, again, to any fault of the provider, but I do kind of point the finger at the EHR systems, right? That capability of copy forward, carry forward, all of that creates to the fluff that you and I are talking about, right? All of that is the um, additional elements that are not necessary from visit to visit. I agree with you. What you said is clear. Providers need to be documenting based on that particular date of service. What are they addressing and doing and servicing on June 2nd, for example, right? What are they doing that day? There should not be a copious amount of copy forward from the EHR without some sort of revisions and editing that they're conducting. So yes, it might be very helpful to copy forward a little bit of necessary information from the past, but that portion should be edited to then reflect what was done on the individual current date of service. So I think that's really, really well said um, that that fluff needs to be eliminated because we are operating now in an EHR world. And so... I do believe emphatically that it is the EHR that that contributes to all of that unnecessary fluff that as you and I are certified auditors, we are the ones who wade through all of that unnecessary fluff when we do our jobs. And then we have to go back to the providers and health systems and provide education and state, just like we're saying today on this podcast, this very thing that we need that documentation to reflect current criteria for the patient. Um, so I think that's fantastic and spot on. I love it. I love it. And also, no, sorry, Sonal did not mean to interrupt. On another side note with the EHR systems, I have found just in my past experience, we have to remember that sometimes when understand, you know, that there's coding rules and regulations, if you will, to go along with all that. So sometimes it's very difficult um, to get those software people to understand, no, you can't tell your providers just to check all these boxes to get them to populate. They don't understand the rules. 
Exactly. That's an excellent point that you brought up. Those boxes, absolutely true. Um, you know, the EHR vendors and representatives are selling their product. I understand that. And they think it's useful to use those little check boxes. Um, but in fact, it does a disservice by just checking everything from visit to visit um, when it's not medically appropriate to be checking those boxes again and again and again. So absolutely. So hopefully our EHR systems will get better over time as well and tweak all of those things out. Um, and hopefully in addition to the vendors providing some guidance, people like you and I are also providing guidance as well. So yeah, I like it. I like it. All right. <laughs> all right, Shelly, let me move on to my last question. Okay. You've had an amazing long career over 30 years, right? But I am still curious, where are you going to be in the next five years? What have you still not done in your career? Where will I find you in the next five years? <laughs> well, I love healthcare. You know, that's all I've ever done, really. I've had, you know, grown up as a teenager, a few other little jobs here and there and, and had, you know, some side hustles, if you will, um, during my lengthy healthcare career. But I will tell you, I think um, I've enjoyed my career very much. Um, you know, I've, I've made it to where I feel that I've done the best help and uh, service to my clients and customers and, you know, co-workers, if you will. And so to be quite honest with you, within the next five years, five years tops, hopefully, I am definitely looking forward to some retirement time. Um, I will definitely still be involved. I will just, um, you know, hopefully instead of 70, 80 hours a week, it might be 40 hours a week, uh, you know, cut back a little bit, but I'm definitely looking forward to uh, spending some time with family, grandchildren, doing a little bit of traveling. Um, so definitely some downtime. And well-deserved downtime at that. That's perfect. That's perfect, Shelly. So for my <laughs> listeners, would it be okay if I provide in my show notes, if they have any questions about hospice care, auditing for the hospice setting, if they can contact you at Acevedo Consulting? Absolutely. That's wonderful, Shelly. I will be sure to do that in my show notes. So is there anything you'd like to say before we have to end our time together? Is there something that we missed in our conversation today? I... I would just like to say it's been a pleasure talking with you today. And thank you for um, inviting me to be on your podcast to talk about the hospice space for a little while. Oh, thank you so much, Shelly. I know everyone is going to eat this conversation up. You provided great facts for all of us. So thank you. And now it's time for my best practice tips in trusty tip. So in today's new back to basics compliance tip, I wanted to focus on breast biopsies. In particular today, let's go over fine needle aspiration biopsies, FNA biopsies, to make sure you are understanding the code descriptions and how to compliantly code and bill for these surgical services. So what is an FNA breast biopsy? Well, it involves a very thin hollow needle that's attached to a syringe 
which is used to withdraw the aspirate. This aspirate contains a small amount of tissue or fluid from an area on the breast that looks suspicious. This biopsy sample is analyzed to see if cancerous cells are then contained inside of it. Now, if this area can be felt, the physician can guide the needle while feeling the lump. If the lump cannot be felt with any ease, the needle can be watched via an ultrasound screen as it approaches the area. This is known as ultrasound-guided biopsy. Now, there's other forms of imaging guidance which are also used in FNA procedures. There's also fluoroscopic guidance, computed tomography guidance or CT guidance, and magnetic resonance imaging guidance or MRI guidance. Now, FNA procedures are usually outpatient procedures. CPT provides coding guidance that must be adhered to. Now, CPT states that FNA biopsy procedures are performed with or without imaging guidance. When more than one FNA biopsy is performed on separate lesions at the same session, same day, same imaging modality, use the appropriate imaging modality add-on code for the second and subsequent lesions. When more than one FNA biopsy is performed on separate lesions at the same session, same day, using different imaging modalities, report the corresponding primary code with modifier 59 for each additional imaging modality and corresponding add-on codes for subsequent lesions that were sampled. Now do note, this detailed instruction applies regardless of whether the lesions are ipsilateral, which means on the same side, or contralateral, which means the opposite side to each other, and whether they are in the same or different organs or structures. When FNA biopsy and core needle biopsy are both performed on the same lesion, same session, same day, using the same type of imaging guidance, do not report separately the imaging guidance for the core needle biopsy. When FNA biopsy is performed on one lesion and core needle biopsy is performed on another separate lesion, same session, same day, using the same type of imaging guidance, both the core needle biopsy and the imaging guidance for the core needle biopsy may be separately reported with modifier 59. When FNA biopsy is performed on one lesion and core needle biopsy is performed on another separate lesion, same session, same day, using different types of imaging guidance, both the core needle biopsy and the imaging guidance for the core needle biopsy may be reported with modifier 59. And there's also more guidance provided by CPT assistant. Now, they instruct us that CPT code 10021 and CPT add-on code 10004 are reported when imaging guidance is not used for the first lesion and each additional lesion. CPT codes 10005 through 10012 describe the FNA biopsies performed with imaging guidance which means imaging guidance is included or bundled into these codes and they should not be separately reported. So be sure to follow the parenthetical notes under these codes because there's a wealth of coding direction in these parentheticals, in my opinion. 
And also remember, an FNA biopsy is performed when the material is aspirated with a fine needle and the cells are examined cytologically. It would be incorrect to report an FNA biopsy code for aspiration only. So I hope this has proved to be an important back to basics for a rather tricky surgical procedure, a rather tricky service to keep well documented. So remember, pay close attention to your provider's operative reports. When the documentation paints the medical picture with clarity and with vibrancy from the onset of care, a certified medical coder can then abstract the often complex breast FNA biopsy procedure codes with accuracy. And finally, in this week's inspiring quote in Spark, it's from our beloved American author, poet, and civil rights activist, Maya Angelou. Nothing can dim the light that shines from within. Absolutely true, right? I think this is a perfect quote that reminds us, inspires us on the importance of illumination. This powerful statement encourages us to have greater purpose, to have greater passions and greater commitments. It is with these ingredients that we all can see the bright light within ourselves. It is here that we see the illumination that resides within. I am happy Maya Angelou's spark still burns brightly in all of us today. So that wraps up today's episode. Please go out and make this a great day, an incredible week for yourselves. Aim a little higher, do a little more, and give back in any way you can in 2021. There's so much each one of us can do. As always, I appreciate you diving into today with me. And if you want more information from me, go ahead and follow me on LinkedIn. I'll leave links to everything in the show notes below. Please continue staying safe and healthy, practice safety for one and all during our collective seemingly never ever ending life and times of coronavirus. Thank you so much for listening in on today's very special episode. And I hope every week with me brings you closer to helping your providers paint a masterpiece. See you next Wednesday. Thank you.